Well, I hope you're clapping like that at the end too. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for being with us. I'm Geraldine Doog, and I'm going to be moderating today, and I think it'll be a, a very interesting exercise all round. And the question, as Anne suggested, was how to be a feminist, or we're suggesting this is what we're going to be speaking about, the big question. What's, we're going to try to wrestle with it for the next hour or so. There are many different answers, of course, of course. And more than that, it's become one of those summary words, a big tent word, that in some ways captures a great deal but defies precision. And maybe that's a problem, maybe that's not. I think that's one of the things that we'll wrestle with a bit. The only woman in federal cabinet says she isn't one. A lot of women in the business world profess their absolute belief in gender equity, yet say they are not feminists, they don't apply the word to themselves. Now, whether that's because they don't like it, or they think it won't go down well in their environments is something that we might find out today. It can seem, I have to say to you, a bit of a generational thing. Again, I'm not sure whether this is exactly right, but baby boomers and people a bit older feel, I think, very comfortable self-identifying as feminists. They take it for granted. Their daughters, much less so, but that could be changing too. Then again, we have the phenomenon of men of relatively recent times, happy to say they're feminists. Even Daniel Radcliffe happily acknowledged himself to be one not long ago. So by the end of this hour, maybe a little more light will have been thrown on uh, this word so that it's less of an enigma, so that we can better work out what it can and cannot hope to represent in the 21st century. So I'm going to invite you to welcome all our guests. Clementine Ford is a writer, broadcaster and public speaker. She's based in Melbourne. She writes on feminism, pop culture and social issues. Roxanne Gay co-edits Pank. It's a non-profit literary arts collective. She's a professor of English at Purdue University and she's collecting an increasing following for her distinctive perspectives and criticisms, but pretty direct and uncompromising, but also courteous, mostly. <laughs> um, mostly. <laughs> Jermaine Greer is very well and known indeed to many of us here in Australia. She's influenced many, many of us in her writing and her wit and her commentaries dating back to the 70s. She's annoyed us too from time to time. But I thought her appearance on that documentary of Howard Jacobson's last year called Brilliant, Brilliant Creatures, uh, I don't know whether how many of you saw it on the ABC, gave us the opportunity to gain even more insights into this Truly fascinating Australian woman, whom I'm very glad could be with us. Tara Moss is a highly successful novelist, journalist and TV presenter, fascinated by crime, uh, but whose first non-fiction book, The Fictional Woman, has become a bestseller since being published last year. And she's found the time as well to advocate strongly for the rights of women and children. And uh, also Celeste Little, sorry Celeste, I had this on another page, two more. Celeste Little, an aren't a woman who has discovered the power of writing commentary that people can't ignore um, and just where that takes you. Her blog, Rantings of an Aboriginal Feminist, has led to much wider exposure in newspapers, online and on television and radio. And Anita Sarkeesian has seen her life turn upside down, truly since starting a video web series called Feminist Frequency. That was almost six years ago now, must feel like a lifetime ago to her, critiquing the depiction of females 
in pop culture and gaming culture, and it has catapulted her into the headlines and into some outright hatreds. And certainly she can say she has changed the agenda. As Rolling Stone magazine put it last year, the backlash she has suffered has only made her point for her. Gaming has a problem. So ladies and gentlemen, will you welcome this remarkable panel, please. Now, I'm going to try to keep us to about 50 to 55 minutes, because we've taken some very interesting questions that we ask people to send in, written questions, and there's a very good range. So I'm going to attempt, if I can, to give about 10 to 15 minutes for questions at the end. But I'm going to ask each of you, in your own way, to answer the question, uh, what feminism means now? And I think even, I've decided to sort of slightly narrow it. Does feminism still have the power as an idea to galvanise women, to change anything specifically in their lives? Now, Clementine. Oh, I, well, I hope so. You know, I think that first and foremost, one of the things that I thought when being asked to be on this panel was that I don't think I can tell anyone how to be a feminist because I'm still figuring it out myself. And all I know now is that the very dogmatic views that I had when I was 18, 19, and kind of coming to this sort of philosophy and I discovered something that spoke to me in a way that no one had spoken to me before, has changed so much from that point and I imagine will keep changing. And I, you know, learning from so many other people and, and as society progresses, we change the way that we, you know, might have viewed things 10 or so years ago, but I think that the way that feminism has that opportunity to galvanise young women and older women and you know, anyone in between is still there, but we need to be very careful about maintaining the sight on what it is that actually is the oppressive structures towards women. That um, One of my frustrations at the moment is that we can get too kind of bogged down in arguing with each other. And, um, you know, if someone doesn't say the right thing or if someone expresses an idea poorly or maybe if, even if someone just asks a question about something that they, they, they don't necessarily have a very complex understanding of, we can sort of fall into these sort of online fights that end up distracting us from the big issues. And fundamentally now, the way that I try and view feminism is to try and remember that as frustrating as things might be and as, as fiercely as I might disagree with some things that people say and have completely polar opposite views on po particular political things, fundamentally women are not my biggest enemy and we can find that common ground with each other, I hope. So is it too broad a church? Does it, is, it, is it too imprecise? I think that feminism means different things to different people and Absolutely, the challenges that I face in my life would be things that to other people would be completely meaningless and, and the challenges that they face are some, you know, oftentimes much more significant and oppressive than, than perhaps uh, the things that I'm dealing with. Um, and I understand that and I, and I don't, hopefully don't try and speak for everyone and hopefully don't ever assume that I can speak for everybody. I can only ever speak my own truth and, and be very open to hearing everyone else's and, and helping to support them to express it. And Celeste, how would you answer that? 
I, I really hope that it has the power to galvanise people. I, um, I don't know how to not be a feminist. It's kind of, you know, along with my race politics, I've always felt the oppression of being, you know, an Aboriginal woman in this country and a woman. And the idea that people can actually rally around this point, that they can see that life can actually be better and society can be changed is something I'm incredibly passionate about. I guess um, one thing that I am seeing a bit now, it, 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 there seems to be almost, um, almost a revisiting of the idea and how that applies and, you know, what structures are what structures are most important to try and overthrow at this point in time? Because I think that um, we're seeing a lot of individual women of um, high stature come out and describe themselves as feminists, but in that, I think, gets lost the fact that it's a political mo movement that's about overthrowing structures of oppression. And so that's what you see it as? That's exactly what I see it as. Oh. I want the system smashed, you know? I want a better life for everyone. Um, <laughs> Oh my God, I've got to cheer. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, if, look, I, um, I, and I'm talking very locally at this point, but one thing I did see, I'm seeing a lot of young activists get up right now and they are being out there and unapologetic and it's pretty extraordinary to watch, particularly after the 11 years of Howardism hangover, which was a horrible time where our rights actually, you know, any rights that were gained from the second wave got systematically attacked and depleted. So, you know, that's, that's where I see it now. I see that there is a bit of a, um, there's a staunchness coming back. It's pretty amazing to see, and I am actually inspired by people coming up. And do they this. call themselves feminist? I'm seeing a lot of self-identifying feminists right now. Um, okay. I do grapple a little bit with um, definitions of feminism because I see it, like I've pointed out, very much as a, um, a systematic, well, as the movement to overthrow systematic gender oppression. Mm. Um, you know, other people see it in different ways, but I think that's also the power. We're a movement that is actually about discussion and collectivization, and therefore those sorts of points are ones that we need to grapple with in order to advance the cause for all. Okay, and Roxanne, would, is that how you see it? Definitely. Um, I see more and more women claiming feminism, which I think is a really positive thing, and we haven't seen that for a while because we've often distanced ourselves from the term. It's the F word. Oh, I can't call myself a feminist because that means any sort, any number of just annoying things that are actually <laughs> not true. And so <laughs> I, I am really encouraged, and I do think that we're galvanizing young women. In the United States, there's a group of young girls called the Radical Brownies, and they're, um, <laughs> yeah, they're between 8 and 12 years old, and it's a renegade brownie troop for women of color, for young girls of color, and they earn badges like Radical Beauty and Black Lives Matter, and... Um, sustainable food pathways. I, I mean, it's just amazing. And so I think that's where feminism is the most exciting for me right now. And absolutely, it's being galvanizing. But you've written about the bad feminist. <laughs> What's that? Oh, God. You know, you just, you call a book something and then it just... Yes. <laughs> Sorry. It becomes Sorry. a whole other thing. Um, it started tongue-in-cheek uh, because I am not a great feminist and I have some inconsistencies in my ideology, but I believe women are equal to men and I believe in reproductive freedom and I believe in inclusion of all women. 
And so if feminism has historically focused on white middle-class women, then yeah, I'm a bad feminist because I'm going to focus on all women. And so I'm both a bad feminist because I'm just not good at it and I listen to terrible music, but <laughs> I'm also a bad feminist because I really do believe that inclusion matters and that we have to fight for all women even when we don't agree with how they choose to live their lives. We shall return to that. Now, Tara, what does it mean to you? Well, I think uh, I, like a, I like a bit of a definition, and when I do talks and speak about feminism, I'll often ask at the beginning, you know, how many people here identify as a feminist? And it's a pretty lonely crowd, you know, there's not a lot of people putting their hands up. And then you look at the dictionary definition, the advocacy of women's rights on the grounds of political, social, and economic equality to men. This is like basic 101 stuff. You say, who here believes in that? Almost everyone puts their hand up. And so it really frustrates me that we've got to a point in, in 2015, and I have seen this for so many years, where it is extremely popular to, uh, to badmouth and distance ourselves from the very movement that gives us the right to be standing here on this stage, having a microphone, having jobs, owning our own property, having at least some rights over our own bodies. I think it's extremely disturbing that that has managed to continue because there's nothing new about bad-mouthing any word that's used to describe the women's movement. And people on this panel will know this. You know, suffragette, that term was usually, uh, or was originally a term of derision. Women's liber was used as a term of derision. Feminist is now used as a term of derision. There's no safe word to use to describe um, this human rights movement, which is for the half of the population that are born women and girls. So, I, I, I find it... You know, there's nothing new about this, and I find that as someone who publicly identifies as a feminist, I'm constantly being asked, but, you know, doesn't feminism have, an, you know, a problem with the term, you know, isn't it, don't you have a kind of marketing problem or something? I'm like, read a history book, you know, this, this is not surprising. Nothing has changed about this, and we need to be more inclusive, we need to include more women of color, we need to include more women who are trans women, we need to include, there's all kinds of things that feminism needs to be doing, but to actually throw out the entire movement, or in fact, to distance ourselves from the very term that is the dictionary definition, accurate term for the thing that we prescribe to, I think that's nonsense, and we've got to stop doing it. And, and um, have you formed your conclusion as to why it did stir up, well, you say that this is predictable, mm. but why precisely? What was it that's so challenging about the term It's then? change. Change is challenging. It is actually challenging the existing structures of power. As Celeste was saying earlier, how can you be a, a human being in today's world, look around you, pay attention to, you know, who has the power, who has the money, who's in parliament, who's in cabinet, look at the group that's excluded, and then not be interested in feminism. I mean, that is nonsense, particularly um, if you are a woman or no one, okay? Um, so, you know, this is, uh, it is not surprising because it is challenging to acknowledge and accept inequality of any kind. It is always a challenge. It's an uncomfortable thing to do, but we have to do it. Well, Anita's certainly been experiencing a great deal of lack of comfort <laughs> from some of her challenges. Uh, now, Anita, you've been really thinking a lot about this, I know. How do you... 
prepared, I think. She's overprepared, <laughs> she says. Well, that's not a sin. Uh, Go ahead. So, so I wrote some things. Can I just share you this? Because I think can. it answers you the question. Can. Uh, if you'll bear with me. Um, so, how to be a feminist. Um, I had to learn how to be a feminist. So, throughout high school and college, I was involved with clubs, organizing against wars in the Middle East, raising awareness about climate change, and demanding gay and lesbian rights. So, I was heavily involved in social justice causes, but I still didn't call myself a feminist. At the time, I may have even uttered the dreaded phrase, I believe in equality, but I'm not a feminist. <laughs> yeah, not a high point in my life. Um, <laughs> So like most people who grew up immersed in the neoliberal ideology of the West, I saw the world largely as a series of individuals making their own personal individual choices. And here I was, a young woman, making my own personal choices about what to wear, what to buy, what to study, and what I wanted to do every day. Um, within that narrow individualistic framework, feminism seemed like a relic of the distant past. Back then, I thought sexism basically boiled down to a few bad apples with misguided personal beliefs born out of ignorance or overt hatred. So it wasn't until I was in my early to mid-20s that I began to realize my impression of feminism had been completely wrong. Uh, with the help of some amazing mentors and by reading a lot of feminist writing, especially the words of women of color and queer women from around the world, I learned to see through a sociological lens and understand the world as it really exists, as a series of intersecting social systems. Once you have a systemic and institutional framework, you see how oppression manifests in many subtle ways under the systems of what Bell Hooks calls white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. So not only did I have to learn how to be a feminist, I also had to learn how to be a feminist who understands systems. I had to learn how systems of oppression are maintained by our participation in them, but they're also self-perpetuating via paths of least resistance, and as such, are larger than any one person's choices. Okay, so this is the part where I say things that may ruffle some feathers. Um, but I think it's a critical discussion to have. So ever, over the past few years, I've become increasingly worried about the direction mainstream internet feminism appears to be headed, at least in the West. Um, unfortunately, many contemporary discourses in and around feminism tend to emphasize a form of hyper-individualism, which is informed by that neoliberal worldview. More and more, I hear variations on this idea that anything that any woman personally chooses to do is a feminist act. This attitude is often referred to as choice feminism. Choice feminism posits that each individual woman determines what is empowering for herself, which might sound good on the surface, but this concept risks obscuring the bigger picture and larger fundamental goals of the movement um, by focusing on individual women with a very narrow individual notion of empowerment. It erases the reality that some choices that women make have an enormous negative impact on other women's lives. So it's not enough to feel personally empowered or be personally successful within the oppressive framework of the current system. Even if an individual woman can make patriarchy work for her, it's still a losing game for the rest of the women on the planet. The fact of the matter is that some choices have ramifications beyond ourselves and reinforce harmful patriarchal ideas about women as a group and about women's bodies in our wider shared culture. And because of how systems of oppression intersect and compound one another, it's women of color, indigenous women, women living in the global south, women with disabilities, queer women, and trans women who bear the brunt of these ramifications. Choice feminism also obscures the fact that women don't have a real choice. We have a very narrow set of predetermined choices within patriarchy. Women can choose from a pre-approved palette, but we cannot meaningfully choose liberation. We cannot choose a way out from our constraints, at least not without ending these oppressive systems that limit our options. 
So when we talk about free choice in today's world, we're really talking about a very narrow spectrum of choices that are amenable to patriarchy. So when we talk about how to be a feminist, for me, that means being committed to something much larger than ourselves. It's understanding what role you play in our collective movements for liberation. It's re-examining our desires and interests and understanding how those are often shared by capital, sorry, how they're often shaped, maybe shared, who knows, uh, by capitalism, patriarchy, and white supremacy. It's understanding our own intersections of privilege and oppression and how that will fundamentally change our behaviors and attitudes and values. It's realizing that being a feminist is a lifelong learning endeavor and that we will make some mistakes on the way and we should be compassionate to ourselves when that happens. It's realizing that others will make mistakes and we should extend that compassion to them as well. Feminism is not about striving for perfection. It's about striving for justice. We are all connected. We are all bond together under the oppression of patriarchy, and as such, our personal actions or inactions do have a harmful effect on other women, especially those from the most marginalized communities. I realize this isn't a popular thing to say, but feel go feel. Ugh. I can't say it apparently. That's how bad it is. No, um, but feel good personal empowerment is not how to be a feminist. In order to be a feminist, we have a responsibility beyond ourselves. We have a responsibility to each other, and we have a responsibility to work for the collective liberation of all women. Well, sorry. I looked down, I was taking notes. Um, so that personal growth is not good enough for you, personal development is, because there could be people here who are listening to that who really don't want to be political activists in any way. Does that discount their feminism? I think feminism is a movement. It's a social justice movement that we participate in to end the, you know, end oppressive social systems. So to me, feminism is more, you know, one step of feminism is believing in equality. The other step is actually doing something to get there. Okay. I think that that's really important. Definition. It, it uses the word advocate, so you have to be an advocate for these things. It's it's one thing to believe them and believe in equality. That's a, that's a fantastic step to really believe that and have that filter down through all of your choices. Amazing, wonderful, really important step. But it also says it says advocate. You have to advocate. So that I think is for one person it might be at the water cooler. For someone else, it's on the stage at the opera house. You know. Mm. Okay, Jermaine, how do you how after all these years, how are you seeing it? After all these years, yes. <laughs> well now, first of all, there's a logical notion here, which is that if you define something, you limit it. You actually straitjacket it. It's very important that feminism is not defined, that it's allowed to grow and be organic. I think we should also consider whether we can put any real meaning into the word equality. What with? with the current state of men, with the corporate society we live in, which is unjust to everybody in it. The idea of equality, equality is okay, because everybody thinks they understand it, but in fact, nobody does understand it. And all the time we've been talking about this, the differential in women's life earnings in this country has extended to 18%. So we're not even getting towards it. It's an illusory goal and we're not going there. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you're a feminist if you identify as a woman. That's enough. 
that before you're a Catholic or a human being or an Australian, you're a woman. So for example, the fact that there are 200 million missing women on this earth worries you. What happened to them? Where did they go? Some of them will have been eliminated by sex selection in ab choosing abortion. But for a feminist or a woman, this poses a, a problem. What's going on here? Are women making the choice not to bear female children? Has anybody asked them? Have they found a way to speak to us? No. Where do we stand on this issue? In England, for example, it's now almost a rigueur, I think, not to reveal the sex of a fetus during a scan if it is thought the woman will opt for sex-selective abortion, which is to treat her like a child, like a fool. It's to say that she can't make her own mistake or even her own choice. Where do I stand as a feminist on this issue? Now, the only way I can get anywhere with it is to find the women involved and talk to them. But no one is listening to them, no one is publishing, everybody is judging. Um, where do I stand here? But is it worse to opt for sex-selective abortion than to raise a little girl knowing that she will not be properly fed, she will eat last, knowing that she won't get expensive medical care if she needs it, knowing that she will die of what is called in this textbooks differential care before her first birthday. What are we dealing with here and what have we done about it? Now look, if I bring this to Australia right now, one of the things that distresses me about feminism as it's understood by the the press by magazines, is it's very ageist. It's always about young women of reproductive age in family relationships. You've got a huge problem here, which I think is going to get massively worse. The story is not obvious, but we know that the current government is making an attack on pensions where it's going to change the indexation of pensions. That's just mysterious enough to confuse most of us. Who is it going to impact? It's going to impact people in residential care. Because why? Because you're in residential care to the value of 85% of your pension. If your pension becomes worth less, your care, which is already disgracefully poor, will become even worse. Why is this a problem for women? Because women are 70% of the care home population and they're 85% of the people employed in residential care. This is a problem that affects women immediately. Now the thing, it is so shocking that people in residential care in Australia and in England and God knows where else beside, lose their civil rights. They are locked in, they are incarcerated and they have committed no crime. Why are they incarcerated for their own good? Why, why can't they be looked after without being locked in? Because there's not enough staff to look after them. Why are they malnourished? There's not enough staff to feed them. Now, the interesting thing is, if you look at the wages that, that the women employed in this industry earn, they earn 20 bucks an hour as a starting salary and it never gets much better. I pay the kids who work for me in the forest more than that. I wouldn't dream of paying anyone 20 bucks an hour. But the next thing that happens is that that wage never improves. There are slight 
um, growth in it round about the five or 10 year mark, then it actually goes back down below the starting salary. There's no career structure, there's no promotion, there's no hope. The only reason why you do the job is out of mercy. So how does feminism affect their lives then? Or how does, is somebody motivated by feminism likely to take up their cause more or someone motivated by classic social justice? Well, nobody's going to take it up. The real fact of the matter is it's not taken up. Why does the government beat up on that sector all the time? Because they can get away with it. Do you know why they can get away with it? Because 51% of the population has no political power. That's what they rely on. So, but that's what I think is, I think is fascinating about this discussion because um, the collective nature that Celeste was talking about and really you're tilting at, see, I just think that's a, there's a real tension there for a lot of women who might say, no, I'm just not interested in that sort of collective behaviour. Now, you're saying, Tara, that it is a fundamental tenet of the definition that you live by, but I, I don't know whether a lot of women want to live like that, but they do want to have a sense that they're developing to their full potential, which is what Jermaine wrote about back in the 70s. Are you suggesting that the, a lot of women who identify as feminists don't want to notice other women around them? Is well, Because I, I, I don't think that's the case. You don't think that's right? See, I no, think I mean, I think, there, I think there's misrepresentations in the public narrative constantly in relation to feminism, in relation to human rights, in relation to the law, in relation to structures of power, in relation to women, in relation to girls. I mean, and the list goes on. That misrepresentation is precisely that. It doesn't necessarily mean there are all these women out there who don't care about one another. That's just what, that's, that's the impression you can get if you start reading the selective articles, especially the stuff that gets the most press. And the path of least resistance press. is to not be a feminist. Like yes. the path of least resistance is to go along with the systems and the structures. And the structures are very individualistic, very don't care about any of these issues, don't speak up, because if you do, you get attacked for it. But so I, why would you do that? And I think that that's why it's so important to actually think about what Jermaine and Celeste are saying, is that it's, when, when we talk about equality consistently, this, this idea of equality, 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 and Jermaine's perfectly right, when she says, what does that equality mean? Is that equality with men? Well, that's still operating under a system that has prioritised patriarchal ideas of power and leadership. Essentially, we're living in a world that um, certainly prioritises white people. So it's, it's really what you're talking about in that framework is mm. equality for white women with white men mm. under those systems of, of leadership and power and capitalist structures. Mm. So r rather what I prefer to think about now is... Uh, liberation and liberation for all women from those systems and then that covers not just white women like myself but women of colour, trans women, disabled women. Disabled women are among the most oppressed and discriminated against in this world. Disabled women are 90% more likely than non-disabled women to be sexually assaulted. They're much more likely to be sterilised against their will because of the idea that not only because of eugenics but also the idea that somehow their reproductive systems need to be eradicated from them because that's a way somehow to solve sexual assault. Well, no, obviously it just takes away the evidence of it. There are, there are women who, if we strive for equality 
in the system as it exists now and as we understand it, there are still significant numbers of women, probably a majority of women, who will not see equality within that system. And that's why it requires a radical overhaul, smashing the state. Whether or not that's possible in our lifetime, I don't know. I don't have the answers for how we do that, but I do know that we have to think radically differently about what that equality looks like. And it has to extend beyond having women on boards and having women given, having a small percentage of very particularly prescribed women who are middle class most often, white, educated, um, typically from Western backgrounds, having them see, uh, achieve equality within those structures. And so that nothing really changes, but then what we have is this illusion of equality having been achieved. Okay, I mean, <laughs> because... I'm intrigued by Anita, I'll come, come back to you, Jamal. I'm intrigued by Anita saying she had to learn about systems. You had to learn about the sociology of systems and structural change. Absolutely. And that was obviously quite a journey for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I sort of joke about how it was the most liberating thing that ever happened to me and also the most frustrating for everyone around me. Because like when you start learning about systems, Everything is sexist, everything is racist, everything is homophobic, and you have to point it all out <laughs> to everyone all the time. So there's a good year of my life. <laughs> there's a good year of my life where it was just I was the most obnoxious person to be around. Um, and then you, you, you settle into it. You start to understand, like, oh, people have been living within these systems, and it was just sort of a, a liberating moment for me, and you learn how to pick and choose your battles and that sort of thing. But I think that that's the critical piece here, um, is that we have to understand this as systems. And I, I really like what you were saying, because that's fundamentally challenging power dynamics. It's like, we don't want equality within these oppressive systems. We want to create actual real equity. So it's not just replicating what currently exists and what power dynamics currently exist, right? Um, I'm sorry, but that also completely devalues what women can bring to the table in terms of how we construct societies and construct community leadership. If we're just yeah. striving for equality in a very masculine kind of run and dictated system, then we're still fundamentally denying what women can bring and, and, and the radical way in which maybe if women were given the opportunity to reshape the world, then we'd have a completely different well, would they, would, world to live in. Would... would would it be radically a different world if women could really reshape it? Uh, the short answer to that is yes. <laughs> uh, but it's a yes that hasn't got much in the way of substance. I mean, the real difficulty for us is that the power structures that are around us have been formed on this phallic uh, corporate model, which has, you know, a CEO who does nothing, who delegates everything. <laughs> who takes the credit for everything and the blame for nothing. Um, and you see the way they play the game. It's what the newspapers are all about. They're either about that or they're about sport. And it's all to do with the way people, the way men accumulate power. And they've kind of invited us to join that system. But that is the system that's had its foot on our throat. Why would we join with that system? But when it comes for looking for a different way to do it, Sisterhood is powerless. That's why Sis I asked, that's what I... It sisterhood has never had any power, but if you look at female structures, for example, one of the... One of the and people laugh when I say this, but I mean it. Um, if you look at how the Country Women's Association in this country, and that was an extraordinary movement when it started, mm -hmm. started in good old Canada, has all the best ideas, but never succeeds in really carrying them out. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
It starts in Canada, it then becomes a world movement. Who is leading the anti-fracking struggle in Australia at the moment? It's the CWA. What do they have going for them? They have a network. They have a, a system of communications. They also have something else we're not very good at, which is discipline. How does how does our discipline look? When we agree to disagree, we agree not to tear each other to pieces in front of outsiders, but we keep up the dialogue and the argument. You see, something we're not even mentioning, which is dreadful in many ways, is that all over the Islamic world, women are supporting the, Is the Islamic movement. We have the case of the three girls who were a straight-A students in England who've gone to Syria to join ISIL, thinking that there will be a role for them to play. We tend to behave, at least our media behave, as if we are the mistresses of feminism and they just haven't got it. They just don't know what it's about. We get in, we're very surprised to discover they have feminist martyrs in Islam. We need to sit down on the ground with these women and talk to them about how the hell we're going to survive this because the way it's shaping up, we're due for a world war. And none of the men around us has a better idea and none of our foreign ministers has a better idea <laughs> uh, because she's not a feminist, so where would she get it from? <laughs> We have, if we're going, we, women talk and we have to talk with each other and we have to find places where we can talk, privileged places where we all sit on the same level, where the Western women are not lording it over the Oriental women, uh, for example, or rural labouring women or whatever. But we haven't got anything like it. We're yodelling in a vacuum. We're just, no one's hearing us. Roxanne. That seems to me is where you've, because you've given, you've found yourself a venue and a place and you really are steadily building uh, uh, credentials and, and clout. Now, how do you hear this? <laughs> well, you know, I think a lot of this conversation is interesting, but I'm a realist. And um, so what I mean by that is, how do we translate ideas of collectivism and liberation and destroying the patriarchy to the people that live in the community, for example, where I live, which is a Midwestern town uh, in the United States, a small town, they would look at you like you had lost your mind if you said <laughs> liberation to them. And so I think that amongst ourselves as feminists, we have a lot of great ideas, but we also need to think about how do we actually translate those ideas into measurable change? And how do we take them from these great conversations amongst ourselves and get more people on board because we can't leave those people behind just because we don't, you know, they might not be on board or they might say, oh, I don't want any part of that. We have to take all women with us when we smash the system. And so I think about a lot of this stuff and I just, I, I'm interested in, and I don't have the answers either, as Clementine said, um, I don't have the answers, but I think we do need to start asking these questions. I think we have great ideas and we have great conversations, but how do we take it to the people beyond our intellectual circles? And this is a really tough, but I mean, therefore, just your top two priorities, how you do try to harness your mind into, by the sound of it, that's what you do do. What do you nominate for yourself? Oh, boy. <laughs> the top two priorities for me right now, for women, um, are childcare, Mm -hmm. 
and subsidized childcare of some kind so women can enter the workforce. Mm -hmm. I know that's still part of a system, but right now we have all too often women who say that they can't work because their salary goes to cover childcare as if their husband's salary shouldn't cover childcare. Um, and so I think we really need to look at how do we support women who have children and who choose to have children, but how do we also support women who don't have children? and who don't enter the domestic situation and how do they get uh, social support systems that they're going to need. So that's my first issue. And I think the second issue is unfettered access to birth control. I think that we need to be able to have that. Boy, see that's just, <laughs> truly that's 30, I've, I've been doing interviews on this for years and years. It's incredible to hear you cite those two things that go right back yeah. to the start. Now, Anita, you're in a very different situation, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, well, I wanted to just say, like, so in the US, well, so I, I disagree with one of the things that you said earlier about how being a woman is being a feminist. Because in the US, we are, our reproductive rights are regressing real fast. And so there are women, conservative women, who are claiming the title feminist, who are opposed to women's reproductive rights. Like, I don't think you can be opposed to reproductive rights and be a feminist. Those things are not... They do not align in any Compatible. way. Um, and I think that, like, these practical on-the-ground issues of, like, it's startling to think the decade that we're in and we still are like, hey, we're, like, still trying to hold on to abortion rights. We're still trying to hold on to giving, like, um, childcare access and having, like, birth control. Like, these should be givens. And we're, we're sort of stuck still trying to fight these fights that have been going on for decades to just hold on to what we already gained. Mm. Um, that is very limiting to the movement in a lot of ways because we have to legitimately put in so much energy to just save the little bit that we already have. Yep. Now, you, your work, so you've moved into this, the, the, the new, the digital world's depiction of women. So, I mean, again, you're, you're entering the new, which is a very old debate, <laughs> and you're paying incredible price for that too. You've got this great line that harassment is just the, radia the background radiation of your life. Yes, me and many other women. So, yeah. what drew you into that? What was it? Was there a tipping point moment when you just thought, I can't? Was it your understanding of, of structures? or Because you, you love your gaming, in, but you... You moved. There was something that tipped you into activism. In terms of the harassment, you mean, or in terms of the representation? Work? In representation of women. Uh, so I actually started Feminist Frequency in grad school because I was really frustrated with how, how alienating feminist theory was in academia. That this idea of feminism should be, is a liberating idea and should be available to all people. But in academia, you have to be privileged to attend. You have to be privileged to read the books. You have to be privileged to access uh, scholarly text. You have to learn how to write a certain way that nobody else can understand. Um, <laughs> Like, that's not, why would we trap these concepts in this space? And so I actually started Feminist Frequency, um, heavily influenced by Bell Hooks, who talked about how pop culture is where the pedagogy is happening. Um, and I was like, so I'm going to marry these two ideas and, and create an accessible, um, free show, <laughs> which is not reading, because I was in grad school and did not want people to have to read anymore, <laughs> um, that, that was able to to talk to people about feminist theory with the texts in their lives, with the work that is influencing them and influencing their values and attitudes every single day, um, celebrating the things that are working well, talking, uh, critiquing the things that are not working well. Um, and so that's why that, how that all started, is to be able to just talk to people where they're at with 
these ideas of feminism. But the, what you've stirred up is much more than that. You've... I just talk about video games. I don't know what everyone's problem is. <laughs> you what? You don't know what the problem is? I don't know what the problem is. I just talk about video games. Um, just... Very serious. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, so it is about, I know, God, I should just cave right now. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the... <laughs> This sort of goes to show how important the media is in a lot of ways, right? That, like, what I talk about in representations actually has an impact on our society. And, you know, it's not a monkey-see-monkey-do relationship, but that the media is one of our socializing socializing components. And games are really bad to women. They just represent women really poorly. Uh, Across genres, across platforms, across, um, like indies and triple A's. And now that's not to say that there aren't games that are great and have great representations, but it's pretty awful. And so the backlash of very entitled men to attack women who dare say, this is not good for us. This is not okay. We want to be included in this environment. And them pushing back and saying, no, this is our space. How dare you, how dare you challenge us? Um, is I think part of this, this str- struggle that we're all trying to figure out how to do this feminism thing, right? And how to push back against systems that are constantly telling us to stop. I'm told every day for three years or more to stop doing this, right? That I'm not... Who, who tells you to stop? The, the internet. The, the internet. <laughs> right? And I think that's... that's they don't request that you stop, you know. That, no, they're not the polite thing. about they're it. No, they don't request that you stop or say, hey, I disagree. And I think this next point really brings us to one of the most pressing issues in the world today, which is violence against women and the sense, and the sense that we feel entitled to threaten violence against women and girls on a daily basis. And I don't think there's anyone in this panel who has not experienced threats of violence, even in the last 24 hours, right? I mean, it's not a laughing matter, and it is absolutely, it should be at the forefront of many of our conversations. I mean, violence against women, intimate partner violence, for example, in Australia is the number one non-disease-related cause of death, illness, and disability for Australian women between the ages of 15 and 44 the number one cause. Traditionally, it's been reported that about one woman every week is killed by a partner or former partner. This year, it's been more than two in 2015. More than two, right? And everybody on this panel has experienced threats of violence. And, you know, I've spoken at the Opera House. I've been very privileged to be able to speak here a few times. Speaking, you know, coming on with you today, the first time I'm seeing security detail as big as I saw with, you know, Obama visiting, right? It's... (laughs) It's that sense of entitlement that when a woman speaks out, the world, or at least these certain individuals in it, feel entitled to threaten that person with violence. Not only to say, I disagree, I think you're wrong, but to actually threaten violence, to try to use that, that bullying, the fact that you know, we are living with this uh, threat of violence all the time. Yes, all women are living with this threat of violence, and they will use that to try to silence people like Anita and the other people on this panel. And I think that really should be talked about. It also has a massive chilling effect. So women who see what happens to me don't want that to happen to them. And I don't want that to happen to them either, but that it scares them from participating and speaking up. And it has this this massive chilling effect. So we just had in... um, 
in California and San Francisco, a big game developers conference, and there were a lot of back-channel conversations about women being like, do we need to be worried being in public in a gaming space as women? Like, what is our, are we gonna, like, how are we going to, to protect our safety if something happens? And I'm just like, I can't believe that we have to have these conversations about women who are going to do their work, right? Who are going to do their trade, right? Um, it's, it's unbelievable, and the fact that challenging the status quo results in threats of violence and acts of violence is unbelievable. Yeah. Right, that that, it that it probably was ever thus, though, wasn't it? I mean, that's what political yeah. activists throughout history Absolutely. have confronted. So it's not, in a way, it's, it's not, not new, surprising. But that's also horrifying, right? Like, that, that's still the response yeah. to saying something like, hey, maybe you should tone down the boobs in your game. Like, right? Like, that should not be a statement that is, leads me to three years of death threats and bomb threats and no. all and kinds of things. What's actually interesting about that as well is that, um, you know, one of the things that I'm sure every one of us has, has had sent to us at some point is women in the West have it really good, and if you want to know who's really suffering, go to the Middle East. So yes. not only is that an underpinned by incredible racism, um, underpinned by this idea that somehow Middle Eastern Arab women, particularly Muslim women, don't know what it is that they're doing and they're just constantly living in this state of oppression. But also, fundamentally what's being said there is, we could treat you like that, we choose not to, but just understand that we could do that to you. That is the threat that is being said. And actually, and when I hear that and it's balanced then with this outrage that I get from men that, oh, 99, oh, they just pick this statistic out, 99% of men are good, decent men and they'd never harm women. Well, you might not be taking an axe round their house. <laughs> but what you're doing is you are, you, it's this pervasive kind of threat that ripples across everything, that this is, this is what we could do to you, this is the threat that you have to live with. And interestingly, like tying it back then to this, um, this racist kind of idea of, of the Arab world, that never let it be said that in the West we don't have our own fatwas. You know, that we don't have this constant threat of, of murdering and killing and harming women who are essentially just standing up and speaking the truth about their own lives. Yes. Oh, yes, Celeste. Sorry. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was talking about that only the other day because you know there is that constant MRA sort of thread about we could treat you as bad as what these women here are treated. But there were three Aboriginal women who testified against a security guard, long grasses only, you know, in a court case, and I said, well these three women were not believed. Like, the testimony of three black women in this country counts for nothing. So, you know, we can compare systems here. It just seems to be an ongoing bloody issue. Well, for me, 20 years ago in Canada, it took, you know, there were, there were a dozen women who came up and testified against the same man. They'd been raped by the same man, including myself. It took that man's friend to have the courage to speak up in court for anyone to be believed. The only case that he was actually um, put in jail for was the one where his mate testified against him because a dozen women Bill Cosby. just wasn't yeah, um, enough. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say, Bill Cosby is a perfect example of that. Until a man comes forward and says, yes, I saw Bill Cosby drugging a woman, you know, we're not going to believe him. And right now we're in the 20s, if not the 30s. And it's the same MO across decades. And it just goes to show that women are never believed. Uh, we're never trusted. We're never um, considered human. I did a panel 
in Adelaide a few days ago with Kushar Karimi, an Iranian doctor who's now based here in Australia, and he was talking about how when women testify, the testimony of two women is equal to that of one man. But we like to pretend that's something that only would happen in Iran. No, that's something that happens every single day in the Western world. And we have to look at that, that our stories are not believed. When we talk about violence, we're dismissed. We are considered liars, as if it's such a treat to lie about violence. Uh, you know, it really pays off so well. Uh, <laughs> and we really have to start to look at that. And this idea that, I, you know, and I, what a couple of the others have said here, I, I resent that we're supposed to be grateful when men are on their best behavior. Um, it's However, I think it's, Im if, if this is all a, a chorus of doom, that there's been no advances, I think that's not a good, I don't think that's a particularly inviting message either. Is that what you're all trying to say? Have there, is there nothing that you can highlight that you think is an example of the benefits of collective action that have advanced the cause of women in the last 30 years? Well, hang on, we've, we've got to identify this collective action. I mean, one of the things that interests me is, I, I didn't say, by the way, that to be a woman was to be a feminist. I said to identify as a woman before you're a Catholic or an Australian or whatever is to be a feminist. Then you can start figuring out what your priorities might be. But how are we going to stop the attack on the pension, for example? Um, we get the idea that power belongs to the masses because of the nonsense that we talk about democracy. Uh, and it doesn't, of course. But it, do, it, does, it does belong to a handful of bankers who can get away with not worse than murder. How do they do that? Where does their leverage come from? Well, the interesting thing is that in the socialization of men, they start learning how to do that from the time they're very small. They form organizations that are held together by loyalty within and by aggression without. We don't know anything about that. We don't learn to do that. We haven't discovered how you get leverage, how you make people do what you want. It's not to do with numbers. It's to do with understanding how to put pressure on the system. And if we're going to safeguard the pension and the already parlous state of older people in this country and who are majority women and the people who work with them, then we've got to make it clear to Tony Abbott that he can't get away with this. Now, how do we do that? That's the kind of collective activity. It doesn't have to be everybody, but it has to be disciplined and has to know at what point do you put pressure on the system and how do you make it unbearable? How do you make them capitulate? How do you play that game? And we have to find our own strategies for doing it. And we're not within a light year of doing that. We're in serious trouble here. This is not nothing. No, this is, this is the future that gapes in front of all of us. Yes, and it's not good enough. We uh, work all our lives, we pay our taxes, and we end up being plundered by the state, which is the only option. I think, I think it's the true. I heard the other day that uh, women over the age of 65 who don't own their own home are the most, arguably the most disadvantaged in Australia. They're the most vulnerable, they're the most exposed, and they certainly are at risk of, of the changes that could be coming. There's no doubt about that. Therefore, it, therefore, has there, well, have there been successes because of clever, strategic and tactical action that you can identify? I mean, Roxanne, have there been any, have there been any successes that it's worth highlighting? 
No. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. You know, I think that we've seen, we see small successes. Um, in the United States, recently we had the Black Lives Matter campaign, and that was in response to the murder of Tra um, Mike Brown. Like, there's so many, it's like, which one? Um, and it was started by two women, and it created a collective action, and we started seeing protests in cities all across the country. And I don't know that any change has been created because the police system uh, is hell-bent on manifesting a police state in the United States, but at least we dared to be heard and we dared to say black lives matter. And so I think we're starting to see small moments of activism, but is it reaching the people in power? Is it reaching people in corporations? No, they but don't the care. The other thing about that is we've been there before. Yes. That battle has been fought before and was apparently won. And then within 10 years, we were back where we started from. Yes. Um, and Obama's made this huge inspirational speech today, mm -hmm. which is going to be his swan song. It was a fantastic performance, but it was a performance. I'm going to ask you all, because I, wanted, I do want to get to a couple of questions, but is there one thing you would like to highlight and just share with us all today about how being a feminist in your own life has affected the course of events for you? I mean, how, how has it actually made a difference in your own life? Not just political activism, I think it's this question of, of whether it's feminism that has driven you or whether it's, it's socialism or whether it's a labourist tendency. What, what is it? I, I think it's the feminine, that's what I'm intrigued by to hear because I hear a whole range of descriptors and I want to know whether it's feminism that has inspired you. Celeste. Yeah, I mean, I already said at the beginning, I've never been able to separate being Aboriginal in this country to being a female in this country. And I've always conflated those two sort of movements. So, you know, the question of land sovereignty and bodily sovereignty run parallel in my world. Um, and, you know, I think that has formed a lot of my experiences. I remember having, sorry, I remember it being pointed out to me at a very young age, you know, was I a prep in, um, a prep in Canberra and someone, oh, a little five-year-old, whatever they're called in Canberra now, it's been so long. Um, but, you know, someone actually calling me a black bum and me... <laughs> me physically pushing that, pushing that other little girl and my school report said, Celeste is a very astute student, you know, asks a lot of questions in class, picks up concepts easy, but she needs to watch her temper. So that whole idea that in the defence of, you know, having it pointed out to me that I was different and defending myself in that instance was the wrong thing to do, rather than someone else actually pointing it out. And... It was pointed out to me that being a girl, I was different as well. So, you know, I was supposed to, um, I was supposed to wear this horrible little dress to school. I wasn't supposed to be playing the sports. Um, so I've conflated the two. I've seen, how, um, I've seen how gender repression can happen within an Indigenous context, as well as in the white patriarchy. And so it most definitely they, motivates you. Yeah, they've you. all shaped me. So I think one of the things that I've bought from that is that it ends up, I, I become more of a hardcore radical because I've been fighting these, you know, mm. structures in a parallel way my whole life. And that's all I can draw from, the fact that I'm seeing these systems that are actively excluding certain people. And, you know, for the benefit of all, we need to fight those systems. Roxanne. 
Feminism has definitely allowed me to believe that my voice matters, and I think that even though it's just one voice, it's a good place to start in creating change. Uh, it has allowed me to believe that I can exist in this world and like, that I can protect my bodily autonomy uh, when so many times that has been contradicted just by the ways in which other people have treated me. And so for me, it comes down to voice and autonomy. And so, yes, even though feminism has a lot of work to do and we're still grappling with what it even is, I can absolutely see the many ways in which it has shaped not only me, but how I see the world. It has helped me to understand that not everyone moves through the world in the same way that I do. It has helped me to understand that I hold a whole lot of privilege and that I have a responsibility to do something with it. It has helped me to be more empathetic to the way women live beyond the country I'm from. Mm -hmm. And so I am still, even though feminism is flawed, rather grateful for what it has offered me. Thank you. Tara. Well, for me, um, my experiences in the world began to make more sense when I realized that those were experiences, the types of experiences that were shared by millions of other human beings. So for me, the discovery of the systems at work, looking at the larger patterns at work, was a really big part of my um, discovering what feminism is and why it matters and why our stories matter. The fact that, you know, as Bell Hooks said, that no black woman writer can write enough, no woman writer has ever written enough. There's not enough of our stories out there. They are still being sidelined, and feminism has, has shown me, you know, that, that lens. You start to look and you notice that those stories aren't out there and that it matters. And, and coming back for a moment to the good news, the positive stuff, I have seen changes. You know, as a, as a crime writer for 15 years, I dealt almost exclusively with male police officers for the first, you know, 10 years. It's doubled the number of women who are police officers in Australia mm -hmm. since 1996. It's doubled in that time, you know. And, and speaking of the violence, unfortunately the violence itself, that actual violence has not diminished, but our understanding of it has, has increased, it has got better. It was not that long ago that when a woman was killed by her spouse, she, the man got a much lower sentence than a man who was killing a stranger because it was thought that it was, uh, a spouse could provoke you. That jealousy was an understandable reason to murder yep. another human being. That's not that long ago, so there is progress. I think we, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are gains being made. But yes, we have to stay very clear-eyed about the fact that we have not arrived in a, in a mer meritocracy. It's mm. a great word, isn't it? The great meritocracy. We're not living in it. There is still oppression, it exists. We have to stay clear-eyed about that. But differences have been made and feminism is one of the most successful human rights movement, movements, civil rights movements the world has ever seen. Good, okay, thank you. Anita. Um, <clears throat> I think intersectional structural feminism fundamentally changed my life in every regard. Um, it changed, the, it changed who I was friends with, it changed my relationships with my family, it changed how I talked, it changed how, with the choices that I made, education and career choices, it just, it changed everything for me. And I think that I, 
to me, feminism is incredibly empowering. So when like the, the big first harassment wave hit in 2012, when I launched my Kickstarter, feminism is what empowered me to continue mm -hmm. because I understood how systems worked. I understood that this isn't about me as an individual because I could be any woman in this place. And I used feminism to determine how I was going to react, how I was going to respond, and that I was going to persevere through this and take that role to talk about this larger issue, right? Um, so feminism to me is very liberating and, and absolutely crucial, even if it is difficult and challenging and complicated and messy. But I think that that's really important and it's really important to own that. Clementine. Um, well, I think that certainly for me, discovering feminism has been a, a an intellectual journey that has spanned the last 15 years of my life. It's been enormously rewarding. It's been frustrating at times. It's been upsetting. Sometimes you do have those days where you wish that you could just kind of, it's like that Onion article, feminist takes 30 minutes out of feminism to watch TV. You know, it's like once you see the world and you've been given the language to talk about the world that you live in, you can't unsee any of these things. And it, and it can be enormously distressing. But I know that regardless of the hurt that uh, I might feel and, and the, the threats or the, the discussions, I mean, really, honestly, someone can call me a, a big fat slut now and it doesn't, it doesn't actually bother me or affect me at all. But any of that hurt that, or, or threats of violence that prevents women from speaking publicly about these things because of their fear, the one message that I have now is that the, the, the hurt and pain that you feel as a woman by participating in the shrinking of yourself and the silencing of your own voice because of fear is so much more painful than anything that anyone can say to you, um, anything that anyone can threaten you with, to, to be silent. And just the other last thing I would say is that I absolutely agree with Roxanne that personally for me, the two fundamental issues of feminism and women's liberation is economic freedom, which will flow on to, to being able to live in dignity in our later years, and also reproductive freedom and bodily autonomy. I had two abortions in my 20s. I had them in South Australia. They were free, they were legal, they were done in safe medical centres with no judgement from my medical professionals that were helping me. The fact that I consider that to be an enormous privilege, one of the biggest privileges that I've ever had in my life is, I think, shocking. When women in El Salvador now and women in America are starting to be imprisoned because they've had miscarriages, the policing of women who choose to have children or who can have children, because obviously not all women can or choose to have children, but the policing of our reproductive systems is, for me, one of the fundamental challenges facing feminism. And we have to resist being complacent about it because that's exactly what happened after Roe versus Wade. Jermaine. been a liberation feminist. I'm not an equality feminist. I think that's a profoundly conservative aim and it wouldn't change anything. It would just mean that women were implicated. Now, I wrote a book in 1969 which was called The Female Eunuch and the argument was that women, the way they're presented in our society, the way that they're encouraged to behave, represent 
uh, a domesticated form of femaleness, that femaleness is mysterious and unmanageable, and rather than try and figure out what's there, what is our strength, our the strength of our libido, of our desire, of our creativity, uh, what you do is you make us terribly anxious, you infantilize us, you tell us that we, we must never put on any weight anywhere in our body, we mustn't have a fat ass, even though women are fat ass creatures, that's just the way yes, it goes. Jermaine, don't go there, please. But, but the, way, the way it's gone now is that women are more hairless now than they were in 1969. We'd never heard of a full Brazilian. <laughs> and, and also they're thinner. Anorexia became an issue and it comes and goes cyclically ever since. All of these are signs to me that women's angst is getting worse. They're less satisfied with their bodies. Boys take it upon themselves. 15-year-old boys will tell a girl who's got pubic hair that she's dirty, that she's a slut. She should be hairless like the women in pornography. Uh, we have even less idea of what women's genitals will look like partly because the Australian censors won't allow you to show the labia minora or the clitoris in pornography. So boys and girls who are watching this are getting an even more castrated idea of what girls are. The terror of ageing is worse now than it ever was, and it curiously it's infected feminism. To be an ageing feminist, as I am, is to be somehow uh, parked. You know, there's got to be a better version that came along since. <laughs> Um, and I, I sort of say to him, listen, the, the only option is to be either ageing or dead. And frankly, <laughs> if it's the same to you, I'll be, I'll be happy with ageing. But if I'm actually looking at the pressure women put on themselves, and Kim Kardashian is no help at all in this regard, <laughs> then it's actually, it's got to the to a, a point of complete neurosis. I was looking at the list of very rich women that appeared in the paper today, and most of them are involved in perfection courses, you know, having you work out for six hours a day as if anybody's got time. It's, if it comes to women's angst and their unhappiness and their estrangement, their alienation from their own energy and the own cre their own creativity, it is tons worse than it was. And I, I am still an anarchist, a proper Sydney libertarian, which is where all this comes from. And I will always say, give me the right to grow up. Let me become an adult. Let me make my own mistakes. Let me age. And as I age, give me some seniority, give me some respect. But in our society, older women have no respect whatsoever. This isn't good enough. We've got half a life. Yes, I know that you'll want to um, tease apart my, my particular um, uh, uh, verdict, but what I got from the female eunuch was partly that uh, people had, women had the choice for a public and private life, just as men had the choice for a public and private life. See, she's already got that look on her face. <laughs> but I... <laughs> I no, well, that's really motivated me that I, I think I thought it has. Thank you. Uh, it has, because I think I was brought up with that notion and I had a you know, very good, strong mother. I had the nuns brought, just that the nuns had taught you, with that very much that sense of a domestic life and striking out in ways for power, but in very 
harnessed boundaried ways. And in a way, that's what I got from female eunuch, was that sense that to tilt at broader windmills, not quite the windmills that you tilt at, but it, so that, that, of course, I think there has been real progress made in, that's what I'm, I mean, I'm disappointed, but I accept your views that you all feel there's been exceptionally limited progress. I, th I think it's a tragedy, actually, that all I mean, you... No, 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 you've got to think about it as the prodromal period. Equality was an experiment. Going into the army was an experiment. Finding out how authority works was all an experiment. We learned by all of it. Liberation is on the way, but we haven't started yet. Yes, well, when Roxanne mentions childcare, subsidised childcare and um, power over your own, my God, if that's... So we have had progress, obviously, like, without a doubt, and just the makeup of the room and us being on this panel and having these conversations, and there's all kinds of things that we could list over the decades where progress has happened. My concern is that it's not enough, and that if we just think that progress is this magical thing that happens on its own, then people aren't going to actively do the work to make that progress happen. So I think that it's what? important that we're kind of cynical in some degree, like to, to understand that we all play a role in making progress happen. It's not just something we can sit back and let other people deal with, or that it's just going to magically occur. Just fighting the same battles, but the the um, actual sphere of it ends up just moving or shifting a little bit into another sort of thing. I mean, mm. Aboriginal women are still one of the parallel sort of battles was that um, reproductive rights in this country were being fought at the exact same time as what the stolen gen rights are, and we're still mm. trying to keep mm. families mm. together in sure. the Aboriginal community whilst people are trying to access reproductive rights. I just see that the battles end up being reframed. So where it was sexual liberation and, um, you know, the pill was supposed to be this amazing thing. Now the pill's sort of like expected and almost a sterilising agent that's used for nearly every single condition I can think of um, because our problem is still, you know, <laughs> that, we, that we have uteruses or whatever else in the first place. So... <laughs> Yes, look, we, unfortunately, we have to go. We've got yep. zeros everywhere <laughs> here. Um, I had an amazing moment at a big International Women's Day breakfast on Thursday in Melbourne, 1,200 people for Rotary. And at one point, I said something that, again, I, I haven't refreshed for many, many years, that I thought we will have made progress when mediocre women do as well as mediocre men. And there was, and this was this, <laughs> there was this gigantic clap, as if it was the first time anybody had ever heard that phrase. I thought... My gosh, that was a real back to the future moment, you know, and, and in a sense, I suppose that is the bittersweet nature of what we're talking about. It's, look, it's been a fabulous discussion. I want to thank you all, and I wonder if you'd thank our particular panel of guests. <laughs>